I wanted to share with you the story of physicist Richard Feynman. You know, he was a co-recipient of the Nobel Prize in 1965, I believe. Sometime in the early 80s, an interviewer asked him a question. And if you've ever seen videos of Richard Feynman or listened to his lectures, he has such a beautiful, brilliant way of teaching. And you can just hear and see him light up when he talks about the deeper questions about the universe. Anyways, this particular interviewer said, certain ends of magnets repel each other. What is that when something happens that pushes them away? Professor Feynman's like, what do you mean? What do you want to know? He's like, simple answer is that's magnets repelling each other. And the interviewer's like, I, I know that, but I guess what I'm asking is why do they repel each other? And again, Feynman's like, not sure what to say. And the interviewer follows up with, I think that's a reasonable question, isn't it? And Richard Feynman's like, it's, it's a wonderful question. It's just a matter of why and how one answers a question about why something happens. And then he goes on to explain, imagine you want to know why Aunt Millie went to the hospital. So he makes up a story on the spot and he says, simple answer is she slipped on the ice and uh, broke her hip. So for most people, that will satisfy for the why. But if you're some alien from another planet, that won't begin to suffice as why somebody would go to the hospital. Why does somebody break their hip? And how did she get to the hospital? So he says it's not finished there. You could say, well, she slipped on the ice. Ice is slippery. And she got to the hospital by an ambulance. Her husband saw her, called the ambulance. Well, why did the husband do that? Do all husbands do that? <laughs> do all husbands care about their spouses in that way? And so he, he's funny. And then he says, and then just because she slipped on the ice, why is it that she had to fall? Oh, because of gravity. Why is there gravity? Why did the shoe slide on the ice? I mean, are all surfaces slippery like that? No, there's something in the molecular structure of the ice and that ice expands or water expands when it's frozen, which is different than other materials. And the pressure of the shoe and the way the electrons behave and align and so on. And then well, why are the electrons doing that? Why, is, why are the energy packets doing that? The energy patterns doing that? Well, because there's these different forces like electromagnetism and ultimately saying, look, the magnet repels the same way everything is repelling. When you touch the table, you're experiencing the same thing as the magnets, but you think it's two pieces of matter coming into contact, but no, it's actually two electric fields, energy pushing against each other. And then, well, why doesn't my finger go through the table? Richard Feynman goes on explaining and explaining. He's like, essentially saying, ultimately, to answer your question, we have to go all the way back to the Big Bang. So the point is, what do you mean when you ask why? And you can have any of these limited answers, but it's not the real answer. Similarly, the famous astronomer Carl Sagan said something like, 
if you want to make an apple pie from scratch, first you must invent the universe. I think these are nice examples of how and when science meets spirituality. They were deep thinkers, very curious about the nature of reality. And here's where science and spirituality share common ground. They're both essentially about inquiry. Spirituality is self-inquiry into the nature of who or what am I. And science is the inquiry into the nature of the universe. There's so much harmony to be achieved by appreciating that. When I hear Richard Feynman talk like that, it's essentially like a spiritual discourse for me. When we're thinking about acceptance, that's just it. Ask yourself, why has the why come up in your mind? Is it some form of resistance that we're asking, why is this happening? And are we really ready to be that curious about it, to investigate that deeply, to have that degree of inquiry? When we make claims about the why, like in pride, why? I did it. I achieved it. Or sometimes we might say, this is all so-and-so's fault. I think it's worth reflecting on what Richard Feynman and Carl Sagan were expressing there and step back and realize that nothing happens in isolation. Why ask why? And so ultimately Richard said, I don't think that you're a student of physics, so let's just leave it as they repel each other because that's what they do. <laughs> Essentially, it is what it is. So it is what it is can help us to reframe this this why question. But I think that why comes up ordinarily in times of difficulty. What is acceptance? We often think of acceptance as letting go. Like I need to accept my past. And there's something to that. I would say a big chunk of all of the spiritual practice and training that I've undertaken has simply been to accept myself, to accept the life that I have, the, the history that I'm a part of, to accept strengths, weaknesses, all the things that come with having a life. I would say that's almost 50% of it, but that is not actually the full meaning of acceptance. If you trace the etymology back to Latin, you get two words, ad, ad, and capere. Ad meant to, and capere meant take, or in this case, receive. Think about it. Whenever a person wins an award, they give an acceptance speech. That's when they receive the reward. If someone offers you something and you don't want it or you don't take it, you reject the gift. If you take it and you don't just take it and pretend like you're going to use it and then don't use it, but when you really take it and you integrate it or make it a part of your life, you have accepted it. I think this is often overlooked when we're exploring acceptance that the full achievement of this spiritual quality is when in the present moment, you can receive everything as it is. And I think if we treat everything that is as some kind of gift for our personal growth, then I think it's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to say, 
you know what, I can use this somehow. Out of love, you might accept it. When I was in India, the beginning and at the end, I stopped in Calcutta. Other than that, I was in the forest the entire time. I didn't travel around. But on my way out, I spent a, a few extra days in the, that city before flying home. And it was very overwhelming to see the slums. Rows and rows and rows of tents and cardboard boxes and people lined up to get gutter water or to clean themselves at the end of a road where rainwater had drained. It was pretty disturbing. And then somewhere in the marketplace, I met a beggar who was sitting on a little rug and he had no arms. But he was a very happy person and he had just a beaming smile. We connected briefly. My takeaway from his joy and his ability to stay so vibrant and content, even though his life is extremely difficult, he has a cup, people put money in it, then he carries it with his mouth to someone he can trust that will hopefully exchange it for something like food and maybe help him be able to eat the food. And that's his life. But what I essentially got from him was that his happiness, his contentment was due to acceptance that he didn't really dwell on not having arms. I mean, he didn't dwell on resisting that. And I think it's sort of like, if you imagine a world where everyone has four arms, except you, well, you could really suffer in that world if you're the only one with two arms and everyone else has four. But as it is, everyone else has two. So we don't worry about the extra two arms that we don't have. And we can decide how we want to frame anything. And I think he frames it that way. There are no two arms to be had. So acceptance, this receiving what is, is about assenting to the reality of a situation and then moving forward from there. Sometimes in the practice of meditation, you will find that your mind does not cooperate. You sit down to meditate or be still and you get overpowered with intrusive thoughts to do the laundry or be productive in some way. It's like when you're trying to really calm down or settle down, then all of a sudden, you know, you have all the motivation in the world to, to do something else productive. I would hear people come to my meditation teacher, my guru, and say, you know, I'm just too distracted and my mind's not cooperating. I want to do the practice, but it's so hard for me. And he would say, it will pass. It's not going to come right now. And then someone might have some breakthrough after trying and trying and trying and growing their practice. And now they're feeling peaceful. They, they can sit quietly, sit calmly, and they'll come back to the teacher and say, you're right. My mind is finally cooperating. Took some time, but I stuck with it. And now my mind is peaceful. <laughs> you would say, it'll pass. <laughs> Meaning this is what life is. It's this continuous cycle, this up and down sine wave. And we have such a hard time accepting both. 
some of my family members and I have been talking about the economy before this and going up and up and up since the previous financial crisis in 2008. And we would say, you know, it can't keep going up. It has to come down. But it's hard to accept that. And it's hard to realize that. And when it does come down, whenever adversity comes, that is when people question everything. But I think in spiritual life, it's important to be consistent and not fall into hypocrisy. So I think we have a choice here. Either we're going to question this kind of hardship and these scenes in our life. And then we're also going to question the other side. I mean, who really questions why they have fortune or good luck? I mean, do people really pause and go, do I really deserve this? <laughs> do I really deserve this cooperation from the people around me? What has brought this about? It would be wise to respond to good fortune with gratitude. The blessing of others, maybe my parents, maybe my friends, maybe nature. And then when you go through the adversity, the misfortune, to respond with empathy. Oh, this isn't just me who goes through this kind of thing. This is what other people have been telling me all over the world, in the news or personally. And how deeply did I feel with them? So in that way, yes, then we can explore both sides. But the alternative is to simply be open to both sides, to try to cultivate a kind of equanimity where even when fortune's coming, we're not too excited about that. And when misfortune comes, we don't get too bent out of shape. There's a quote from the Lebanese author Khalil Gibran about how we can cultivate this kind of attitude in the way that, say, a farmer does and witness those seasons in our own life. I'll read that to you. Accept the seasons of your heart even as you have always accepted the seasons that pass over your fields, and you would watch with serenity through the winters of your grief. So people here know winter's natural. Winter comes every year. We're familiar with those phases. Similarly, the internal seasons have their cycles as well. You can't always be in blessings, there's going to be hardship. Or the alternative is, like a Buddha, you reject both. Buddha had such good fortune, right? He was a prince, the son of a king, but he left it. I've experimented with that at times in my life, but I think I've grown more into the art of acceptance. It's just welcoming everything with an open mind being able to embrace everything, to lean into everything, it feels more natural to me. When I look at the external world and I contemplate lightness and darkness, they don't seem symmetrical. For example, you have to keep generating light. You don't have to generate darkness. Darkness just is. It requires no, no effort. The universe is all darkness and just some points here and there, millions of light years apart, are some generators of light, some stars. And they're not going to last, right? They'll burn out. 
the darkness doesn't need any generator to keep it going. So that doesn't seem symmetrical to me, but I think there are some parallels between that and life and the world. Uh, but also darkness doesn't always mean evil either. There's something about darkness that we just automatically reject, perhaps because darkness is a metaphor for our mortality and we build all these routines in our life to shield us from that reality. I, I worked night shifts and I, no matter how tired I was, I couldn't get a full night's sleep during the day many years ago when I worked overnight. But darkness just welcomes you, just wraps you up and people can find the deepest levels of relaxation. So we accept that. Similarly, I think you'll see this play out in life too, that whenever they make a road elevate and go over some area in the town, they have to balance that with a pond. So they have to dig down. The two come together. The light has to be brought. It has to be cultivated. It has to be protected. Darkness doesn't need any of that. Only the light does. And if you do that well enough, then, you know, maybe we go to the other world. But like Gibran was saying that we can accept these cycles and the, the winter of our grief. And I was reflecting a little bit more on what I was saying with the heaviness that I think many of us have felt in the last few weeks. And I had mentioned before that I think part of that is related to coming to terms with impermanence. We have all these routines, and now our routines are disrupted. And I mentioned in the beginning, our, some people's dreams are disrupted, interrupted, broken, perhaps. There are stages of grief. Most people know them. But I think it's worth touching on these because what people don't necessarily know about Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who acknowledged these five stages in her work in the 70s, she did not mean them to be rigid stages that you go through in a particular order. But what some people don't know is that the grief she was studying was not people after losing loved ones. It was a study of patients responding to the news that they have a terminal illness and how they adapted in the wake of that. I think that original understanding of the stages of grief kind of applies to this situation. We have a pandemic, right? And the collective is going through some stages of grief. It may not be terminal for everybody, but there is something terminal about the way of life that we're all sensing, that there isn't going to be a neat return to normal, that something different is on the other side. We all hope that there'll be many things that will turn out better. But I think people are starting to come to accept that there's going to be a new normal on the other side. And we're reacting in different ways. So here are those five stages, and we can probably think about how it's showing up in different ways, and then why it's worth being patient with each other, just like we would if you know, we were trying to support a loved one that was diagnosed with cancer. Those stages were denial, 
maybe many of us were thinking this will never reach us or this will this is something that's only bad in China or it's not a real threat because most people recover or don't have symptoms at all or it's just like the flu or it's only in Seattle now just a few cases there or it's only bad in New York and then bargaining well if we just quarantine the older people can't we keep the economy open or like somebody in the beginning stages of say diabetes doesn't really want to change anything look i just got to watch a few things and it'll be okay or even someone with cancer they say it's only in one organ so i think i should be okay or you know when when it's starting to get closer to us we start making these negotiations with our higher power let this uncertainty pass me god and i'll be a better person and then there's anger could manifest like this is all trump's fault or this is all china's fault or this is all young people's fault for not changing their ways or this is all the liberal media's fault for creating such panic stirring up propaganda fear or this is my fault because if somebody in my life gets sick and i wasn't really being mindful enough a person could feel really really guilty and angry with themselves and then depression just feeling those waves of heaviness and sadness where there's no motivation to do anything and then acceptance which is focusing on what you can control in the present moment now those were just reactions that were observed in patients that they're not necessarily a systematic process that you go through it's not like you start at denial and work month to month through those stages it could be it later got applied to when you lose loved ones but that was the the initial study and so i think that it's it's kind of relevant here and if you're cultivating the quality of acceptance you may be able to get to that place a lot more quickly you may be able to flatten your own curve of grief in that sense when i was mentioning accepting light and dark earlier today i shared that anger isn't just all bad but we think of anger as part of the darker side of emotions um there's a neuropsychologist dr mario martinez that studied immune responses and health outcomes of two kinds of anger one he called righteous anger where people are angry because of oppression because of violence because of people's boundaries or rights being violated and he compared that with what he called self-righteous anger people essentially getting angry because their ego was bruised and those two different emotional responses take very different paths in the body and in the brain and the righteous anger actually had many health benefits and even cardiovascular benefits So I think he was trying to show that anger is an energy like electricity when it's properly insulated through understanding and then channeled it can be directed towards something meaningful something helpful for for others People ask me a lot of times do you ever get angry and the answer is yes I think I'm actually a quite angry person and in my pre-meditative life I was often angry. I think I come from a legacy of anger. 
And now I, I would say I probably get angry every single day, but through enough training and self-awareness, I can catch it, insulate it with meditation and redirect it with compassion. My buddy Alex Ebert has been talking recently about how we just automatically reject negativity, like anger is a part of negativity. I think he made a good point that how do we ever accomplish anything good for the society if it's not first preceded by negativity, like dissatisfaction, dissent, some cases revolution. And so if we just say, hey, good vibes only here, well, then how will things get better? So negativity can destroy things. And it can destroy things that need to be destroyed. So it's worth exploring that side of the darkness and see where that fits in. Just like the nighttime gives us the opportunity to fully recharge and regenerate. Maybe some of the dark side or what we think of as the dark side of our emotional experience has something to teach us as well. There's a coping strategy for achieving acceptance when we're faced with difficulty. Acceptance usually is only relevant when we're going through hardship. People only say it is what it is when it's something unpleasant. You know, how often do you hear somebody win an award and say, it is what it is. It comes when we're, we're saying like, this really sucks, but I'm, I'm telling myself it is what it is. But in the, in the coping skill of lemonade, when life hands you lemons, make lemonade, we hear it, but I don't think we really get taught exactly how you do that. And I remember one summer just sitting with a glass of lemonade and looking at it and contemplating the three ingredients. You have lemons or lemon juice, water, and sugar. And that's it. You can add more to it, but those are the three essential ingredients to, to have lemonade. Now, obviously, the lemons refer to life's problems because lemons are sour so problems are sour or bitter or unpleasant the flavor of water is neutral so the water is a metaphor for mindfulness specifically non-judgment an open neutral mind and then the sugar is sweet and when we say a person's sweet we mean they're kind or compassionate now Compassion represents the side of acceptance when you are going through something that's unpleasant. Because if a person could be kind and compassionate, that means they, they accept the situation and they're just staying authentic in alignment with their values. But this intermediate step is the key. It is the secret to acceptance and that is non-judgment. Now, if you pause here after the water and the lemon, there's something interesting to note that in the summertime at a restaurant, most people would prefer to have some lemon in the water than none at all. So what does that tell you? When properly diluted, we actually want some adversity or we want some sourness, some, some bitterness. No one would want just a glass of lemon, lemon juice. But if it's 
diluted, then it's greater than the sum of its parts. So even before we, we make lemonade, if you could just do that, if you could just practice the receiving part of acceptance, not rejecting, not rejecting. And again, I don't mean things that you can easily change or control. This is, Acceptance applies to things you cannot control. That's, that's an important feature here. So when things cannot be changed, cannot be controlled by you, then to receive it with non-judgment. So to understand non-judgment better, because judgments will just come automatically, even if all this sounds good and you aspire to be non-judgmental, you'll find that it just happens. But we can redirect it by recognizing that we are assigning labels to ourselves and to others and to situations in our life. If we can catch that and remove the labels and come back to just factually describing our experience, then we can get enough of the bitterness diluted. So for example, when we're saying this quarantine is awful, it sucks, I can't take it anymore. Those aren't facts. Those are judgments. It's not true that I can't take it anymore because obviously I am taking it. Otherwise, I wouldn't be able to say that I can't take it. But once the judgment comes, it sets off a whole chain reaction of suffering in the mind and in the body. So redirect. The quarantine is this fact. It is this amount of days so far. Or I have this and I don't have this. But when we come to the judging, try to remove that. So observe with open mind, describe it to yourself factually, and then you can choose to participate wisely. And if we do that, then we'll achieve lemonade with with this and, and whatever else we may have to face in life. Let me bring this near an end by acknowledging that acceptance is also this letting go even though that's not its original meaning. The, the ultimate meaning is receiving. Then there's nothing to let go because you're just riding the wave, okay? And the wave has the peak and it has the valley. But we struggle with two things, with the wave of emotional experience. We struggle with allowing it to begin, okay? So people get really good at suppressing their emotional experiences. We distract ourselves from anything unpleasant you know we look away we turn away as quickly as we can we we distract with tv with food with drugs with alcohol with people you name it but then on the other side of the wave we struggle with letting it go back to the ocean we hold on it is important to talk about this side of acceptance the holding on to things unnecessarily and getting ourselves stuck maybe in the past and carrying that as like a weight on our shoulders in the present moment. I think a simple example of this is something like guilt. Guilt is often a symptom of grief, guilt, sadness, fear, shock. But let's say you feel guilty about something because you wished you had done things differently. And when you feel that, it teaches you what you would do differently in the future. You know how you want to live better. 
and you may even be committed to doing that better. But then we go on feeling guilty. Then a person keeps beating themselves up as if there's more to be gained from the self-harm. And the guilt cannot just stay naturally. The mind has to keep going back and playing it again and again as if we didn't learn the lesson and then punishing ourselves again and again. And so to bring this to its fullest picture, we need to allow in the beginning, we need to be open and to receive everything as a gift for our own growth and then let go on the back end. You may have heard this story. I think it illustrates this beautifully. It's a Zen parable about a Chinese farmer who had an ex- a certain expression for acceptance. On his farm was his son and this magnificent horse that helped plow the field. And his neighbors and the other villagers would often compliment the farmer on it on this magnificent horse and how blessed he was to have such a great horse. And here was the farmer's uh, wise expression. He would flip it on the people. He would say, what seems like a blessing may be a curse. And one day this horse escaped the farm, ran away and didn't return. After a number of days, his friends were consoling him. And we're really sorry you lost that great horse. And he said, the opposite. What seems like a curse may be a blessing. One day, that horse did return, and it came with some friends, 20 other wild horses, and because of the law of the land, they all became the property of the farmer. So now he's rich with horses. The neighbors were all amazed. They said, wow, you're right. It really turned out to be a great blessing that that horse escaped. And the farmer flipped on them again. What seems like a blessing may be a curse. Sure enough, it takes a turn for the worse when his only son is trying to train one of the wild horses. That horse kicks him and breaks his leg. And his son is immobile, bedridden, can't walk for some time. And now their farm is in peril because the farmer is much older and the son is the one who does the selling of their crops in the city. So they take a big hit, and again, they're cons- the family's consoled. But the wise farmer says, what seems like a curse may be a blessing. And the final part of the story is that there's a war going on in that part of the country, and the king comes through their village and drafts every able-bodied young man into battle, except for the farmer's son, because he's not well and so all those young men die in the war except for the farmer's son sort of like Feynman and Sagan were explaining that none of those events happen in isolation they're all interrelated they're all connected to one another so you tug on one thing and you're pulling on the whole fabric of the universe so the farmer realizing this as his way of equanimity. So the question is, what is the difference between acceptance and letting go? Well, they're quite similar. Like I said, if you master the art of acceptance and the receiving, 
See, we never re- fully received the, the pain or the disappointment. So that's why there's a letting go that's required. It's like the light and the dark. We never fully accepted them both. But you can think of it like the monkey trap. Hunters catch monkeys by taking a jar that has a narrow neck and a wider base. And they put something the monkey wants to eat, like peanuts, in there. And when no one's around, monkey puts its paw in the jar, grabs the food, and then its fist cannot fit back out of the bottleneck. And it will stay pulling and pulling, holding on and stuck. They call it a monkey trap, but it's not really a trap, right? Because all the monkey has to do is let go. But it doesn't want to let go because it feels like it had it. Similarly, there are these experiences in life that we hold on to. We we think, no, I, I had it. I had this love. I had this job. I had this youth. Why should I let it go? But you have to let go if you want to get your freedom. And so there's an upfront cost, like when the monkey lets go, he's still hungry, but long-term, monkey's free. Sometimes in psychology, we call this coping skill radical acceptance. It's part of dialectical behavioral therapy, which has four skill modules, distress tolerance, emotion regulation, mindfulness, and interpersonal effectiveness. The radical means just totally redirect your energy when you find yourself resisting, so not accepting. I have something I'd like to read to you real quick that I think can explain the art of radical acceptance. It's a short essay in a book called Unposted Letter by an Indian author named Mahatriya Ra. It's called Acceptance Equals Positive Emotion. When someone is doing something in a way I don't want it to be done and I am not able to accept it, I become angry. However, when someone is doing something in a way I don't want it to be done, but I am able to accept it, I remain tolerant. When someone has something that I don't have, or someone is able to produce results that I'm not able to produce, and I'm not able to accept it, I become jealous. However, if I can accept it, I get inspired. When I encounter uncertainty, and I'm not sure about how I'm going to handle it, and I'm not able to accept it, it causes fear in me. When I encounter uncertainty and I am not sure about how I'm going to handle it, but I can accept it, I feel adventurous. When someone has done something that has emotionally hurt me and I'm not able to accept it, it develops hatred in me. When someone has done something that has emotionally hurt me and I am able to accept it, it helps me forgive them. When someone is present in my thoughts but is not physically present and I'm not able to accept it, I say, I'm missing you. When someone is present in my thoughts but not physically present and I'm able to accept it, I say I'm thinking of you. Then the emotional equation is quite simple. Something plus acceptance equals positive emotion. Something plus non-acceptance equals negative emotion. The next time I find myself disturbed by a negative emotion, instead of asking who or what is disturbing me, I will examine who or what I am resisting. I will replace resistance with acceptance. And the negative emotion will transform into a positive one. Emotional management begins by stopping to blame that something or someone and taking more responsibility to respond to life with acceptance.